Welcome to the 25th episode of the What Happened Last Week in Kurdistan podcast. I'm your host, I am Gilles Shwani, and today's episode is divided into two parts. Part one is news about Kurdistan, and part two is an interview with Paisi Mahmoud. And as always, we start the news with Rojava, West Kurdistan, Syria. So in Rojava this week, in an interview, Pola Jan and Muslim Abdi repeated themselves by talking about the need for a no-fly zone over Rojava, and said that if such a no-fly zone were to be established, that they could take back the cities of Serekanya and Grespi in a week. And just a reminder for those of you who don't know, Serekanya and Grespi are cities in western Kurdistan in Rojava, in Syria, that are currently under Turkish occupation. And they continue talking about how they could hold out against the Turkish army and the Turkish backed rebel forces, really terrorist rebel forces, if I'm being honest, because they're ex-Al-Nusra and ex-ISIS fighters that Turkey is now employing to fight the Kurds. They said they could hold out against them and they could fight back against them. The problem was they can't fight back against planes that bombed them constantly. Beyond that, they also talked about how the Syrian regime were stubborn and refused to meet them halfway with negotiations regarding the future of Rojava. And Polajan actually went as far as saying that the Syrian regime were being chauvinistic and trying to get full control over all of Syria again, just like the pre-2010 days, before the Arab Spring, before the Syrian revolution. But they said that regardless of circumstances, the SDF is not going to disappear and Rojava is not going to return to its pre-2010 state. Basically, they want the right for Rojava to exist as an autonomous area within Syria to be written into the constitution, and they want the SDF to become a part, an official part of Syrian defenses. That way, they can guarantee the rights of people living within Rojava, the Kurds, the Syriacs, the Arabs in that area, and if anything would go wrong, the SDF would be there to support and defend that area. But that was what they basically said in the interview. Next up is some news about a COVID-19 hospital which opened in Hasaka. So the Heva Sora Kurdi, basically the Kurdish Red Crescent, opened a hospital special for treatment of COVID-19 patients this week. In their statement, they talked about how the hospital will operate according to international standards and the staff are likewise being trained. So according to international standards and that many of the staff are actually volunteers. Currently, the hospital has 120 beds, and if you, dear listener, would like to support this, you can go to hevasur.com and donate. That is H-E-Y-V-A-S-O-R.com, and you can donate from there. Now, mind you, according to official records, the COVID-19 pandemic hasn't hit Rojava as hard as other places, thankfully, but it's good to see them being vigilant against this and trying to fight back before it really hits them hard. That's really great to see. Now, Rojava hasn't received any aid from the World Health Organization. They don't have enough ventilators and they don't have enough test kits. So if you would like to support this, please go to heivasor.com. Again, that is H-E-Y-V-A-S-O-R. And you can donate and help stop the spread of COVID-19 in a place where really it cannot afford such a disease. But that is all the news for Rojava. Next up is Bashur. 
South Kurdistan, Iraq. So in Bashur, after a very gloomy week where the situation kind of looked like it was getting worse and worse, in particular in regards to what was happening in the Werte area, where the opposing parties of the PUK, the Patriotic Union of Kurdistan, and the KDP, the Kurdistan Democratic Party, seem to be almost going into a new civil war. But things seem to be de-escalating now. But in that same week, Turkish planes began striking PKK locations, resulting in several guerrilla fighters being martyred. Now, Turkish forces later continued their bombardment of Kurdistan, this time targeting the Mahmur refugee camps, which resulted in the death of civilians. Now, the Mahmur refugee camps is a refugee camp where there are many Kurds from Bakur, from uh, northern Kurdistan, from Turkey. And I have heard some reports, I cannot confirm or deny them right now, because I don't know how valid these reports are, but I have heard some reports saying that there's some kind of embargo on the Mahmur refugee camp, where the Kurds in that camp are not allowed to leave the camp. Why? I don't know. I don't really know. But many in Kurdistan blamed the KDP for aiding Turkey in the bombardment in those areas, and in reply, the KDP released a statement denying their involvement. But the bombardments by the Turkish government continue up to right now, where I'm recording this podcast. However, now the PUK and the KDP are set to meet to discuss the latest events and de-escalate the tension going on in Kurdistan. But things at this particular moment is not looking great. We all know how things go when the KDP and the PUK try to work hand-in-hand when they try to cooperate. I hope it's different this time. But again, like every other thing that happens in Kurdistan, at the end of the day, it's always the civilians. And right now, really, is not the time for these conflicts to be happening. They should be able to let them go, at least for right now, because the economy is stagnating because the, the sale of oil and the price of oil has decreased ridiculous to ridiculous low prices. The COVID-19 pandemic is still going on, uh, even though in Kurdistan it seems to be kind of over, and I'm going to get to that in a second. And, uh, you know, we're being bombarded by Turkey. So the, the parties really need to cooperate at this time and just let go of whatever other conflicts there are. But that was the news uh, regarding that. I'm going to move on now to some news about the COVID-19 pandemic, the disease in South Kurdistan. So, moving away from that depressing piece of news, here is some good news. It seems that Kurdistan, at least South Kurdistan, Bashur, has control over the coronavirus, where days have gone by without a single new case, and over 65% of the 330 patients catching the virus have now been released. And in total, four people have died from the coronavirus, and Kurdistan now seems to be opening up again, after more than a month of curfews and complete shutdown of the cities in the region. This is great news. And on this great news, I'm going to end the part about news, and we're going to move on to the next part, where we have an interview with Paisi Mahmoud.
With me on the podcast this week is Paisy Mahmoud. Paisy is a British Kurd and she works in the fashion industry and has recently gone into activism and campaigning. Paisy is the younger sister of Banaz Mahmoud, whose life was stolen by honor killing. Both Paisy and Banaz endured child marriages in the UK, and now she campaigns to end honor-based abuse and child marriage. And she's very passionate about advocating change for women and girls, especially Kurdish women and girls, and is an ambassador for Iranian and Kurdish women's rights organization. Paisy, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. Uh, so, as I mentioned in the introduction, the fight against child marriage for you is, it's, it's a personal thing. It's not just an objective moral thing that you're fighting for. Can you tell us your story? Uh, yes, exactly. So, uh, unfortunately, I was married to a much older man when I was 16. Um, and that happened here in London. So my father actually arranged this and I didn't have any say in it. So I just started a really exciting chapter of my life. And I just went to college my first year. I was really, really happy to, you know, make new friends and just be a normal teenager. Uh, but that pretty much for me changed overnight when uh, a Kurdish man had approached my father and I quote, he'd asked for my hand in marriage. So when my father came to me and told me about this, I knew that I couldn't say no because just that summer, my sister Benaz, who was only a year older than me, also had a child marriage. Um, so I knew mm. this was going to be my fate. Um, and I was married for almost two years. And if I were to describe to you what marriage was like, uh, you know, being a child bride, it was absolutely hell. And, you know, my husband was controlling, he was abusive and very close-minded we were sort of worlds apart he wanted a wife that would stay at home and cook for him and you know start a family and I was just 16 you know I was a child who had my whole life ahead of me and all I wanted to do was to study to travel and to choose my own husband you know when I was ready to and when I wanted to um and during the marriage unfortunately I fell uh, pregnant quite early on and I knew that I didn't want to have children with him because you know, I didn't like this person. He wasn't nice to me. He made my life really, really horrible. So I actually took the decision to uh, abort my pregnancy, which was a really, really difficult decision and completely frowned upon by not just him, but my family also. So I didn't have any support in doing that. Um, and it's a very bittersweet uh, reason why I was actually able to leave that marriage when uh, my sister left her own abusive marriage uh, and was actually a victim of an honor killing. It was the only time that I pressed on completely, you know, nonstop with my parents and him that I wanted a divorce and that I didn't want to be stuck in that marriage. Um, and unfortunately, it was the month of my sister's funeral that I actually was able to get my divorce finally, which was a whole other uh, challenge by itself, trying to figure out how to even do that as a 17 going on 18 year old and not having any support from any of my family uh, or anybody that I could turn to. Wow. So, so you were legally married in the UK? Yes, I was. At that yeah. age? Yes. Both legally and illegally. Yeah. Wow. So, so, you know, that kind of means that beyond those people uh, within the community, beyond the people who are responsible for marrying off young girls and children. Mm -hmm. um, it's also the British society that, in a way, 
allows for this. Yes, absolutely. Which um, it's really bizarre if you think about it, because you think of the UK and you think, you know, we're talking about um, a country that is a world leader. But actually, both me and my sister were put into those marriages. You know, we had neighbors who were British and we had a community and these people would attend our weddings, you know, the Kurdish community and adults who would see congratulating us and, you know, really praising my parents for what they were doing. And in fact, they would see my father as uh, a very good example of a father who was taking these measures in order to control his daughters. You know, it really shocks me to think that the people around us were actually finding this positive, seeing two children so young, you know, being married off to older men. And, you know, the Kurdish community in London, it's a very tight-knit community. Uh, there is a big population of us and everybody knows each other. So the news that me and my sister were so young and were getting married to these older men, it was really widely celebrated. And it just shocks me because it was so wrong. And I think that's one of the hardest things to live with is that not a single person from my own community ever spoke up and, and said anything, you know, and said something about what was happening in front of them, not just once, but wow. twice. That's it's it's morally it's very hard to swallow hearing a story like that um i i I was watching your ted talk uh as you were talking about that experience and your story and uh the thing that really stood out in a large way for me was you were talking about how as you were getting married off the imam and the people around you were sort of you know this was the norm it was it's actually incredible how 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 many girls uh in your opinion or do you know do you have any knowledge about the number of girls in the UK who are married off as children um the issue with that there's quite a big issue with having the real numbers and i'll explain why so if you have a religious or a cultural or even a marriage that takes place outside of the UK it's not actually included in those official figures so this is where the big problem lies. There's thousands of child marriages that take place, but without the government saying that we require each and every marriage to be registered, we will never really know the full problem, you know, the, the full scale of this problem. Mm. And that's actually one of my asks in my uh, petition and my campaign um, that I've been working on with a growing number of lawyers and organizations and cross-party support to actually call on the UK government um, to change this law and to revoke all exceptions that allow marriage under the age of 18 and to make that actually a crime so that there's something in black and white and quite clear. Mm. And I think it's only this way that we'll really be able to see the real numbers and to see just how detrimental this, this problem is and you know how many girls' lives this is ruining, futures that it's taking away from young girls. As far as you know, what is it that sort of stands in the way of making that illegal is it culture is it is it tradition is it just lobbying what 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 uh, what is it well if um if i uh, go into the the marriage laws in the uk for example they've actually been put in place a very very long time ago and originally this law which allowed parents to make this decision for children so in the uk if you are under the age of 18, your parents can actually give you permission. So it's it's actually them deciding that, yes, I want my child to get married. And originally, this was intended as a safeguard. But if we look at when this dates back to, 
This was 90 years ago when, you know, living together or getting pregnant outside of a marriage was completely socially unacceptable. And if we look at times, things have changed so much. We learn every day. We have a better understanding of domestic abuse and the manner in which, you know, abusers are uh, coercing their um, their uh, victims. And, you know, in this particular case, you have family members who are coercing children to doing things against their will. So this mm. law is actually, you know, completely, completely outdated. And so if I'm, you know, to be honest, to tell you what stands in the way, I have absolutely no idea why to this day the UK believe that this is still a law that is relevant because we understand the laws around so many other things that we change, you know, as time goes on and, and as our society grows. Uh, for example, in the UK, um, we've actually just um, uh, revealed that children have to be in education up until the age of 18 because, you know, we really recognise how important this is for children and this is a time of personal development and growth, yet we still have this law that allows children to marry it it really just doesn't make any sense mm. and, and what is the age of consent in uh, the it's UK? 16 in the uk 16 yes okay. yeah as i was thinking if the age of uh, consent is uh you know 18 or something then it's very odd but okay being 16 it makes sense how some people would get married off against their will at that age without it being illegal technically yeah well we do um, we do actually uh, sorry to interrupt we do get um huh? some people sort of uh you know questioning the age of consent um you know and comparing it with marriage and i think what's really important to remember there is when it comes to sex we are having sex education and there are conversations and you know this is something that constantly is the information is getting out there but i think when you look at children and going into such a lifelong commitment of marriage, um, where child brides um, are actually more prone to domestic violence, uh, sexual abuse and poverty and lack of education, these are harms that really cannot compare to, you know, having knowledge about sex and making that decision and having an informed decision. Do you see what I mean? Mm. Mm. Um, you do make a lot of sense there. Uh, because you know it's two very very monumentally different decisions yes. and uh, in that regard yeah you're absolutely right um, but I want to get back to the uh, Kurdish side of things mm -hmm. and working uh, with the organization that you uh, work with currently have you seen any any steps forward from the Kurdish community to fight back against child marriage um, to be honest with you, I have, yes. Um, I would be lying if I said I haven't. You know, since my mm. own marriage and my sister's, I can't say that I've um, I've seen too many. But I think the problem that lies is that people still do believe that it's okay for children to get married. And for me, this is, this is the worrying thing, that there are people who still believe in this. Um, you know, I've seen progress with other things, for example, like FGM within the Kurdish community in the time that, I've been in the UK and where I've seen my sisters having daughters and, you know, my brother having daughters. And for me, it's, it's really, you know, it's really hopeful to see the mentalities shifting around those harmful practices. But I feel that when it comes to child marriage, we are still not where we should be considering the fact that, you know, 
we are learning so much every day about how important it is for children to be given the time to to grow and to nurture both mentally and you know physically so i think there is change but i believe that uh, as a community as the kurdish community we still need to do a lot more work um you know in educating young people about the harms and uh, you know sort of mid generation um kurds about just how harmful this is for their children you know for their nieces mm. for uh, their cousins and just any girl around them their neighbors So I think we still have some work to do. So we we talked about the you know the society in the UK and the English society for example mm-hmm. and how, what's standing in the way of the laws being changed there and the practices being changed in regards to them. But what about the Kurdish community? What is it that impedes that change? I think to be very honest with you it's people not willing to um grow outside of what they believe is the norm and what they believe has been practiced for many years you know when i look back of um on sorry some of the you know the history of let's say my older aunties or um older you know females within my family and community this is what they've been taught is the norm and i think where they're failing to recognize it may have been the norm you know 50 years ago it can't be the norm mm. now because so much is changing and you know people are changing every single day and we need to change with that we can't continue to practice things when we understand the harm that it causes we understand what it's doing to girls and continue to practice those and i think you know 50 years ago when women were uh, young girls were getting married at the age of you know 13 15 nobody was talking about how harmful this was you know now we have we have real evidence we can see the you know the damage that this is causing and i speak from a very personal perspective i lost out on mm. what i believe was the most important time of my life you know i will never get that time back i will never be able to be that 16 year old looking at the world through a 16 year old's eyes and you know trusting those around me or having faith in the people around me it took away a lot from me and i think it's really important that those members of the kurdish community that don't want to shift from those very outdated harmful practices that they remember times have changed and we also need to move mm. with the times and we need to change with the times if we want to you know progress our children and we want to see uh, the future of young leaders and young amazing women this is what we need to do we need to change for the better and we need to just realize how harmful this is I I want to get back to uh, your own experience for a moment mm-hmm. here. Uh and I apologize if this is a personal question but uh I would like to know if uh, you can answer it. What was what was the mental process? What was the what was that was going through your head in those days before you were going to get married and when you realized that it's going to happen that there's no way out of it? Um to be honest with you so when my father first discussed child marriage with me i remember the first time that conversation came up i was actually 15 and you know like a naive 15 year old i sort of laughed it off and it was from that experience and that conversation with my father that i learned that i'd said something wrong and that i'd reacted in the way that my father didn't want me to react and so mm. when that conversation came back around when i was 16 the the dreams and the aspirations and what i was looking forward to from my life you know growing up in the uk and seeing my peers it it was completely shattered 
by actually the reality that was kicking in, you know, very quickly. Because from the moment my father spoke to me about this man who I'd never seen, never met, to the moment I was, you know, told to be in front of him and to be introduced to him, it happened so quickly that I almost felt like my whole life was flashing before me. You know, it, it just felt like I don't have any any future. I don't have, all my dreams were taken away from me because the thing is I couldn't be that normal 16-year-old. I couldn't be, you know, having friends and having a social life. I was now somebody's wife. So it was really, really difficult to process at the time. It's only, you know, I think for me about in the last maybe couple of years through a lot of therapy and a lot of hard work that I've been able to process what it meant to actually be a child and then to go into being somebody's wife overnight. And, you know, not willingly, not because I'd fallen in love and this was a beautiful love story, but because someone had decided for me. So it was, it was absolutely traumatizing. And, you know, I think when I think back to that time, I just remember feeling so helpless and just feeling like, I want to be a child. This is what I should be doing, enjoying my life and having fun, you know, with my education, uh, with activities that I want to do, not pretending to be this grown-up adult who is now living, mm. you know, this life that I never chose for myself. Now, when you sit down and you talk to someone who might support child marriage and you tell them your story and what you went through, what is the typical reaction, if there is any? I have to say, for the most part, people do respond uh, positively. So they do see once I actually, you know, talk about my experience and what it left me with and, you know, how much damage it did, not just for my future, but how much it emotionally scarred me. A lot of people do tend to be surprised at the lack of knowledge that they may have had. Um, oftentimes, when I speak to people about my campaign and, you know, the work I'm doing, they often say to me, do you know what? I never thought about it. And, you know, some people actually say to me that they thought, oh, it's just two kids falling in love. And when I sort of question mm. that and challenge, well, actually, they're not two kids because you have a child, then you have an, a, you know, a fully grown adult who is taking this position, this very clear power, you know, dynamic to marry a child. And they sort of step back and, you know, having learned everything we've learned recently, you know, in the recent years about control and domestic abuse. Most people do respond positively and see how harmful it can be. I think the challenge I face is when I speak to people who can't really, um, you know, who can't come around and see the harms and in fact just want to continue with old traditional values and don't want to move on from there. Hmm. So, so is that the way forward to changing this practice? Actually, exposing these people to the reality of child marriage? I believe so, absolutely. I think when people hear about, you know, the the real detail of how harmful this is, it's only then that people will actually be able to recognize that this is very, very negative and has a massive impact on girls' lives. And not only that, I think when you also talk about things like education and, you know, the future mm. of girls, we we can see and we read every day and we're exposed to this information every day that the more we support and empower young girls, the closer we are to, you know, gender equality and the closer we are to actually closing that gap, that um, gender gap and allowing girls to fulfill their full potential. 
are there young girls uh, who contact you, uh, perhaps presently or in the past have contacted you, where they are in a situation like uh, you were in? Um, I'm really sad to say yes, because um, I actually get messages on social media, especially when I first started talking about um, my story and my sisters. I was receiving mm. a lot of messages, and I still do. And every time I hear you know, from a young girl who talks to me about their family dynamics and that they are worried about their younger sibling or even themselves being trapped in a child marriage, it breaks my heart, especially because I know what it feels like and I know from a very personal level you know, just how heartbreaking it is to go through something like that and to see your whole life being taken from you and to have that control over you from your family. Um, mm. You know, it really does trouble me. And it's one of the reasons I'm, I'm very grateful to be working with um, ICRO because they do actually respond to, you know, the, the need for culturally specific support and the advocacy and counselling uh, for women, not just from the Kurdish community, but also from the Middle Eastern and, you know, Afghan or any sort of um, vulnerable community out there. So um, as much as I personally, you know, from a, a personal perspective, can't do anything, I'm always um, really, you know, I'm hopeful that I can pass them on to ICRO and to be able to get mm -hmm. them some support and some guidance. But it shocks me, honestly. I thought when I first started to tell my story, I didn't realize that this is so common and it has shocked me for the past year being, you know, in the activism field, just how many people there are that are going through this and that have gone through child marriage. Wow. wow. Now for people and uh, uh, for people who might be in Kurdistan right now and might not have the same kind of access to organizations like ICRO and they see something like this happening or they see that something like this is on the verge of happening. Mm -hmm. What what ways are there to help? Um, I think safely um, intervening, you know, from a very uh, sort of like controlled uh, perspective and actually a controlled approach, having conversations and really outlining the harmful um, practice and its effects on these young women's lives. I think, you know, as we were saying earlier, it's only when you actually break down just how much this can affect a young girl's life, that people mm. will be able to open up and actually learn about how damaging this is. So I think conversation and education is absolutely vital. And that's something that I think um, not just the Kurdish community, but any community that is affected by this um, needs to be doing. And we need to be having these conversations so that we understand and we learn. Yeah. Like if, uh, when I was last in Kurdistan, uh, I came upon a situation where a young woman who was around uh, 16 or 17 mm -hmm. uh, was being given the choice of, uh, or actually not the choice, she was basically being told, you either you know get a high grade in your school and get uh, into university or you get married. And she was still very young, uh, mm -hmm. you know, being 16, 17. Yeah. Uh, I asked because, you know, it was a situation like that. It's something that I've personally been sort of struggling with as how to help. Yeah. Uh, uh, so, yeah, there are situations like that in, in Kurdistan, uh, which is yeah. really, really terrible. And uh, it can be a little hard to find ways to really help them out of that. Absolutely. Yeah, I think um, I know exactly what you mean. And, you know, for me, even myself, having those conversation with my own family sometimes 
um, it's kind of difficult because we have to remember that what we're asking people to do is to sort of rethink, you know, their their whole life's learning that they've been taught about this specific topic. For example, for me, when I speak to, um, you know, women in my own community who are of the older generation, and I try to break down, you know, the negative impacts this has on women, I find that it can be challenging for them to actually accept what I'm saying. But I also mm. believe that in, you know, any case, anything that we want to learn from and grow from, conversation and education awareness is the starting point. And even though it might be difficult at times, and I believe this is where men also play quite a massive role in, in changing this for gals, because I think a lot of the time, and it's not all the time, but a lot of the time you find that the perpetrators are men. Of course, you will have boys who are married off quite young as well. But mm. I believe um, in terms of the, you know, the, the numbers and the cases I've seen, certainly, mostly the men are the perpetrators. And I think in order for us to achieve what we want to achieve and to completely get rid of child marriage, we also need the support of the male community. And we need men to sit and actually say, this is wrong and we recognize this is wrong because we want better for our daughters for our sisters you know for our nieces and for any girl within our our community and any community yeah you're absolutely right um one thing that's very challenging is you know our our society and our community is so heavily heavily controlled by you know the the word honor yes yeah and uh it's that honor that is so difficult to redefine as something that is positive for everyone in, commu in the community not just the men absolutely um i also wanted to ask you doing the work that you do uh being having a platform or being in the limelight um you know i'm sure you make some enemies have you received any threats regarding your work and regarding what you say um to be very honest with you I would be lying if I said there isn't an underlining fear from um, a backlash. Um, sadly, mm. firstly, from my own community. Um, I do feel like a lot of people aren't ready for these real conversations that we need to be having. And, you know, whether it's about child marriage or, um, you know, um, sex liberation, these topics that some people just are not ready to have. I feel there is a lot of uh, sort of animosity and you know, we need to keep quiet about this. We shouldn't be talking about these topics. There is that. Um, I'm glad to say, though, I haven't received anything directly. Um, although I do bear in mind that sharing a story like mine um, does come with a lot of sacrifice. And, you know, I do understand that there may be a time, uh, you know, I hope there won't be, but I do understand that there will be people, um, you know, maybe from my own family or extended family that will not be happy that I'm talking about this. But I think for anybody that might be even listening to this, that might feel this way, it's really important to actually understand where I'm coming from. I'm not trying to do anything negative. What I'm trying to do is achieve something positive for all of us. Because um, as I said earlier, when we empower girls and we encourage girls, we're actually that as a community, as a whole, we're all benefiting from this. This is a greater impact for all of us. Um, I think the the most negative, um, you know, reaction I have received has probably been people, you know, um, 
maybe name calling or sort of Islamophobic comments um, and sort of, you know, saying really nasty things about my family, which I won't say I understand, but I think that's, you know, that's firsthand reaction of people reading, um, you know, something really horrible or hearing about a child going through something. So that's sort of firsthand reaction. I have to say, though, one thing that I've um, actually received from the Kurdish community, especially the new generation, um, you know, my young fellow Kurdish uh, generation has been remarkable. I've received such amazing support and there is such a willingness from my peers to talk about this topic and to raise that awareness and to spread the positive messages. And it has honestly really, really surprised me and has has made me feel um, so positive about this journey because having that support means that my peers are wanting to have those conversations and it's through those conversations that we can actually change things. So that I should definitely mention. I'm really grateful for the, you know, the community I've built online from my fellow young Kurds. Wow. And of course, uh, we're going to support you throughout this uh, journey and this work that you do, not only for the experience you've had and the way you vocalize it so well that's been inspiring for so many young people, myself included, uh, or who, of course, uh, really, uh, thank you so much for the work that you do. It's an incredible thing to do, uh, despite mm -hmm. how difficult it can be. You're still doing a wonderful job. Thank you so much. Um, my, of course, of course. And, uh, thank you for coming on the podcast It really was a pleasure talking to you. And it was, a uh, it was quite enlightening to hear your story and, uh, you know, get your answers about where you think about some of these problems we face. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me and for giving me the space to talk about this. I'm a big fan of the show. So thank you so much. I'm truly honored. Thank you. Thank you. It was uh, my pleasure. Thank you all for listening, and thank you for tuning in. I hope the news was useful to you this week, and I hope you enjoyed the interview. If you'd like to keep up with us and see what we're up to, you can go to our Instagram at whlw-curtisan, and from there you can find links to the podcast and our Patreon, if you'd like to support us on there. And as we are a fully independent news podcast, any kind of help would be highly appreciated. Thank you once again for listening. I've been your host. I am Rajil Shwani, and I hope you all have a great week. <laughs>